Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Cy Wakeman, a drama researcher and New York Times bestselling author. Cy, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Glad to be here. So what is a drama researcher? Well, so far, I believe I'm the only one in the world, so I got to make up that uh, (laughs) that title. Someone called me a drama researcher once. I'm like, you know, that's what I do. I research how much time and energy is wasted in the workplace. And drama is emotional waste. Any energy not going towards results or happiness is a waste. And I research and quantify um, how much that waste is in the average person's life. Okay. So the economics of this kind of stupidity seems to be off the scale. I see this in my world as well, this attachment to what made me successful. It'll make you successful too, even though we're not selling shower rings in the 1950s. So my my question is why this attachment to doing things the old way, the, the, the ineffective way? Well, first I want to just comment on the economics of it, and then we'll get to the attachments. The economics are the average person Someone who's meeting their goals, who's reasonably successful, the average person spends two and a half hours a day in drama, two and a half hours a day working hard, but working with a grudge. Like it's the difference between swimming through mud and walking through air. Um, And that's 816 hours a year that people are less effective than they could be. But more important, like feeling miserable, suffering, and it's self-imposed. So we all have this thing called ego. The attachment comes from, we all have this thing called ego. And the ego's entire existence depends on whether it can identify externally. And so if you're going to identify externally, you've got to always be measuring yourself against the world. Am I one up or am I one down? Am I superior or a victim? And there's very little room for kind of equality. And the ego is in a defensive posture, it doesn't ever want to be exposed or feel vulnerable or humble or have humility. Um, And actually the ego just really wants to keep its external attachment. And anytime change happens, self-imposed or market-imposed, we question that we break up a little bit with our external because the ego is all about mastery and evolution is all about mystery. Like how can I get in and take a look at what I don't know. And instead of learning, how can I unlearn? Um, How can I allow the falling apart of things? That's all internal. That's all evolutionary work. And the ego is anti-evolutionary because evolution kills the ego. So being able to move through change is an evolutionary act. And the ego knows that it's a threatening act. So the ego does everything it can to stay alive and it eats anger for lunch. So it has to say, like, mildly disgruntled all the time. So evolutionarily, the theory being that these things evolve for a good reason, at what point in our lives is ego a positive? So ego's a positive in many ways. Growing up, ego's the thing that tells you what that you're separate from your parents, that you're a separate being. It um, helps you set boundaries. It helps you form an identity. The problem is, is that if it's not offset with self-reflection and some sort of, of spiritual development, some sort of understanding how your mind works so you don't get played by your ego, if it's not offset 
by spirituality or community or meditation or self-study, it becomes the primary factor. And the ego is one of the most primitive parts of your brain. And so most people, their evolution has just been halted because we aren't offsetting it anymore with the dedications, habits, and practices that would have us questioning our own thinking. So the ego serves us until we believe everything we think. And once we lose the perspective that we're the observer of our thinking, once we lose the perspective, we're not the thinker, we're the observer of our thinking. And we believe we buy into what the ego thinks, then the ego has us. It's interesting. One of the models or two of the models that I love to use in my work are the drama triangle which yes. describes the uh, victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer, and ego thrives on drama. And the other place, the, the be somewhere else that Bruce Lee suggested when someone asked him how, what the best way to avoid a punch was, he said, be somewhere else. And <laughs> that. that is the winner's triangle. And on the winner's triangle, you are vulnerable, which is an act of courage. It's a sign of strength. You're nurturing and empathetic. And so you have compassion. You have empathy, not sympathy. And instead of being aggressive and persecuting, you're assertive. You establish boundaries and you explain that this is a line that cannot be crossed. And you communicate with clarity. But Operating from that winner's triangle, you can turn up and be fully present and be authentic. Whereas in the drama triangle, you're spending your life worrying about the past or fretting about the future and um, running this narrative. And that's really where I want to get to, because it sounds to me in TA terms that when the parent voice uh, stops recording and it just goes into permanent uh, loop, Um, And you've got that script running in terms of your place in the world, how people respond to you, what you, your filters and so on. That narrative sounds to me like either your greatest asset or your biggest millstone. So how do you, how do you bring it under reasonable control without stifling it? So one of the most counterintuitive things that I teach is you can't really control your thinking. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just going to think positive. Well, with with ongoing practice, you can change the thoughts, the nature of the thoughts that naturally come. But once you are um, in a battle with what you think, you're, you're still attached. And so what I promote is inquiry. It's not to try and do anything to counter your thinking because you just need to welcome them you know, as a visitor. It's inquiring. Is that true? What do I know for sure? And really looking at who am I when I believe that thought and who am I when I drop that story and really looking with mental flexibility at multiple things that can be true. So moving, we call it bypassing ego, moving beyond ego. The ultimate ego bypasses self-reflection. It's not trying to say, oh, that's my mom's voice. I'm going to think differently. There is a choice in there. But it is just meeting your mother's voice or the parent voice was saying, is that true? And do I choose to believe that today? And really meeting a thought with gentle inquiry. And, um, you know, and I have thoughts that aren't that helpful. They come all the time. And meeting them with inquiry, it's just like, oh, hello again. 
sit down, have a cup of tea, I'm going to continue on being kind. But the type of um, winner's triangle that you're talking about, a lot of people, especially in sales, want to intellectualize that and then go, okay, I'm going to master that and do that. And what they don't realize is that in order to come out in the world in a loving way or a vulnerable way or, or a mentoring or a helpful way, you have to go inside and forge wisdom. So there's so much to be done inside so that you can walk through the world more skillfully and you know, with, with a lot of um, vulnerability and love. And a lot of people want to do the work externally. They want to go, well, give me a class on that and give me a module I can master. And you, you cannot change the way you walk through the world until you have habits and dedications that really are, and we call them evolutionary in practice. And it's not just meditation, but it is disciplines and habits that really have you practicing before you need it, this ability to loosen the ego's grip on your um, perception. So spirituality, whatever you look at, and even poetry and philosophy, if you look at historical um, good advice, people talk about two things polarity and duality where everything's either or mm -hmm. transcend it and master the fact that multiple things can be true at once you know so a lot of people i work with in healthcare are saying things like oh we didn't have the equipment we need that obviously means that um, leadership doesn't care about us and i'm like well what if both could be true leadership cares about you and you don't have the equipment you need like what if but what we do is we intellectualize our feelings if we're feeling anything like anxiety, we intellectualize them into a grievance. That's the work of the ego. I outsource my well-being. I don't feel great. So obviously, Marcus, you did something to me. If we're, you know, in a relationship. You made me boss. feel bad. Yeah, you made me feel bad. And no one can make you feel anything. You are the only person that can, can make you feel that. And so the other thing that people have lost the uh, mastery of a core competency is mastering impermanence, welcoming the new and letting go of that that doesn't serve you and doing that actively in your life on a daily basis. I get up every morning and I go, how am I going to love today? And what needs to die today for me to live the life I want to live, whether it's a belief or a habit or a behavior or you know a relationship. And I make it extreme, but I'm like, what needs to die? What part of me needs to die today for me to live the life that I desire? And that's all internal work. I absolutely get where you're coming from. And I, I think at the risk of making it more of an intellectual exercise, but I think it's really important, uh, certainly from a sales or a management or a leadership perspective, is to think as the other person. Look through their eyes and you know, walk in their shoes and don't think about them. Because that tends to make it much more of a transaction and it's something you're doing to them rather than working with them. Uh, and so a constant theme through the work that I'm doing at the moment is about creating safety, buyer safety, employee safety, management safety. And you know this, the, the difference, the, the need to reverse risk as you move from being a buyer to being a customer, because now you've assumed that risk, you bought it, it's yours now. Um, and I think very often it's that narrative, that dialogue about how you show up and you not necessarily taking ownership of how you show up or how you project because you get reflected back what you project out. 
And so then you can blame your customer or you blame your manager or you blame your peer. Um, We completely outsource our well-being to circumstances and to other people. And it's a total victim stance. Are there any good exercises to raise your awareness of doing that? There really are. And and, and I want to comment really quickly because a lot of people have come to me and they're like, well, we need to create psychological safety for others. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Yes, it's a shared accountability. um, Or yes, you do, but it's a shared accountability. Most people try and create, if they're leaders, psychological safety for another by trying to control circumstances. The only way I can create psychological safety for you is invite you to step up, to toggle up, get out of ego into high self and be self-reflective. And with my own presence, that I'm a centered presence and I can allow space um, for you, but I don't jump up our space with sympathy, feeling sorry for you, including with you. I, I come with empathy and I hold space to call you to greatness. I talk about two things, love people up and call them up. So a lot of exercises to get people to take a look at this are simple questions for self-reflection. So whenever I'm stressed, whenever I'm stressed, or whenever I find myself thinking stressful thoughts like this customer stinks or this customer will never, you know, they just don't understand or they don't get it. I notice my energy when I am anything less than peaceful. It is time to question my thinking. And that inquiry is so important because it leads me right back to peace. It leads me to that winner's triangle that you talked about. And I naturally know how to move forward. So the questions I ask all the time, my favorite question is, what do I know for sure? Because the ego loves certainty over accuracy. (laughs) So you walk by me and don't say hello. Okay. If I listen to my thinking, I'm like, well, isn't Marcus rude? Like, seriously, I just was on his podcast. He, He knows who I am. And then I start creating story. Ever since he got his own podcast, he thinks he's all that in the bag of chips and he thinks he's better than me. And so once I decide Marcus is rude, which I have no evidence for. If I were in beginner's mind, all I know is that you walked by me and potentially didn't say hello. You're just that's the only intuitive. Yeah, that's the only facts I have. I'm very intuitive. <laughs> is, but once I decide you're rude, I treat you rudely. And then you respond rudely. And I go, see, I'm right about stuff I make up. And what people don't realize is how much in a day they take for truth that is unquestioned. And so my favorite question is like, What do I know for sure? And that question changes everything in my world without changing anything. And and what I mean by that is like, let's say I drive to work this morning and I experience something. And if you ask my ego what I experienced, I'm like, well, this guy rams into my lane, tries to kill me, obviously doesn't respect women drivers, is obviously inconsiderate. And all of a sudden my commute is like a near-death experience surrounding by mean people. When I ask myself, what do I know for sure? All I really know is a man moved into my lane, allowing me less room than I prefer. That's it. (laughs) And so it's a different commute in the same car with the same people. My behavior is different. If I believe he's trying to kill me, I do dumb stuff. I speed up and I flip him off and... If I believe that he's moving into my lane with less room than I prefer, I slow down and let him in. Same commute, joy or misery. And this isn't toxic positivity. This is not spiritually bypassing. This is being anchored in reality. 
because there's only one tiny space that you can occupy with agency. You connect an unprepared reality to a different future. And most people work the wrong ends of that. Most people are like, it's an unprepared reality. I'll argue with reality, which is an argument you'll lose like 100% of the time. And then people are like, well, I want a different future. So I'll just envision that. People who have agency get into the small space between an unprepared future and a different reality, and they connect the two with their behavior, with their choices, with not bringing extra drama, with really being there at pivotal points. And those are the points that most people miss because they're tiny and they involve courage and vulnerability. And that's why we come to believe that we're victims is because we are blind to the areas we could have a ton of agency in. So that's really the filter of your perceived reality. You, you can either see it as someone trying to kill you or it was just someone driving a bit badly and you make some space. And again, this comes with a whole plethora of other useful advice. The first thing is that you pay attention to what's actually happening. Yes, and that takes, that takes investment. Then you have to step out of your emotional moment because in that moment, you can either have a rational response or an emotional reaction. And that's right. And what you realize is the emotional reaction is based on non fact. So a lot of people are like, it's just how I feel. Most of the time, feelings follow thinking. And the, again, this is really interesting because if you're running that narrative and that pattern is being repeated time and time again, it's very difficult to break it because then it becomes a habit. Again, in terms of breaking your worst negative thinking cycles, what advice would you give to be able to recognize and catch yourself so that you can start creating better choices? The first part of all of this is like noticing, and most of us need to practice noticing with a meditation practice or morning journaling or doing something to kind of empty our mind of external attachment so that we can really get in touch with the lively um, business that's going on in our own mind. And that's where I love the questions. What do I know for sure? That leads you naturally when you see reality for what it it really is. A lot of people, especially in sales, are like, well, then what do I say? Or then what do I do? I'm like, when you're seeing reality for what it really is, your natural inclination is what can I do next to help either help the understanding or help the solution, you know, finding a solution to sell, like putting myself in somebody else's shoes, that comes naturally. And then you have a lot of choices in there about how much I'm going to invest. And that's where if I were great, what would great look like? Those three questions are just my constant companions um, during the day. And I learned how to do this really well from Byron Katie. She's got a website called thework.com. And she is a master at inquiry. And what you realize when you do inquiry, and this isn't just like a mental gymnastics, this is meditation. When you realize that most of what you thought happened never did, you realize most of the stress you have is not real. And you realize that there's hardly a need for forgiveness because most of the time what we need to forgive never really happened. Interesting. Well, I I think this also builds on something else, which is the need for self-compassion. Because when you come to realize just how daft you've been and all of those perceived slights that you've held grudges for for years, presumably at that point, there's a certain overwashing of guilt that has to follow. So how how do you propose to to handle that? 
you know, it's so interesting that you bring that up. Most people um, don't go there. I love um, what you're teaching, what you're doing. So the what happens when you realize you've been living in a false world and that you've been part of it, there is kind of this bottoming out. And it's like Dante's Inferno. Like you fall all the way down and somehow you come like, you fall through the other side. And there's a lot of um, self-compassion necessary because when I watch people wake up, they're just like amazed. So many people are like, Sai, how do I change the other person? I'm like, you can't. You can just stop enabling bad things to happen. And when they start seeing this, like, Sai, why do I have drama? I'm like, you either you hired it or you allow it or you are it. That's the only reason you have stress at work is you allow it, you are it, or you hired it. And when people start to bring that in, another side of the ego is I suck. And they go clear to the other side. You've met these people in self-pity and they can't get over like what, that's just another flavor of the ego, which is not, I used to be better than everybody and you were the problem. Now I'm worse than everybody. I am the problem. And self-compassion brings us to the middle. A, a key competency I teach people is called gentle returning. Um, when I first started to learn meditation, it's not all about meditation. I, I write, I do many other things. But when I first started, meditation, I had a teacher. And as we would sit, I didn't realize I did this, but you're supposed to focus on the mantra. And as I would lose the mantra and start thinking about my grocery list, I literally would be like, dang it. And I would violently return to the mantra. And my teacher's like, okay, let's <laughs> practice the gentle return. You don't have to be perfect in keeping the mantra. You have to, or you are invited to just notice when you are away from the mantra and favor the mantra. Always be moving in the, the uh, direction of the mantra. And this helps with a lot of self-compassion. Because my mom used to say, Sai, you are perfect and you need some improvement. Like that gets back to multiple things can be true. We aren't all bad and we aren't all good. And I tell people, I screw this up. I write books on this and I screw this up but only daily. Hmm. That's not the point. The yeah. point is doing this That's more often. The human not. condition, isn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> called the human condition, and it's ego to expect perfection um, out of us. You know, I just I wrote a book people will hear about, but it's called "Life's Messy, Live Happy." And so many of us try and clean up the mess, and I'm saying no. Get skilled so that you can live happily in the mess, and that's a skill set that you need to like develop in yourself the ability to um, self-reflect and the ability to make amends and feel your feelings and own when you varied from the path. If you can make all of that conversational, it never becomes confrontational to yourself or to others. It is just an acceptance of my human condition, my intention to try and do good work and be kind to people and the knowledge that I'll screw that up a lot. So I need to really get good at do-overs and amends. This then raises another really important question, because when you look at the research on this, uh, Adam Grant's give and get, he talks about how people who give unconditionally occupy both ends of the spectrum, top and bottom performers, whereas people who take or who always expect reciprocation if they give before they move into that drama. They tend to be middle-level performers. There is this belief, this myth, that you're going to get taken advantage of constantly and you, know, you can't trust anyone. How do you deal with that kind of belief system? So 
first of all, I ask people, um, is it true? So everyone in your entire life has taken advantage of you. And when they can unpack that it's not true, I ask them, how does that belief serve you? And it serves people in a lot of ways that I don't ever have to be vulnerable. I don't ever have to be kind. I can, I can be unkind to others preemptively because of this belief and really helping people understand when you walk with that belief, what's your life like? And if you just for a moment could suspend that belief and believe that everyone's here for your highest good, everyone is your teacher, everyone's here to evolve you, what would that life look like? And then just simply call the ego on, you have a choice. So most people with belief systems, like the world's out to get me, those are belief systems that they've turned up the volume on because it serves them. And it's important to work, like helping people walk with great expectancy, but not expectations. So they're not disappointed, but they're like grateful and surprised. This is work that that middle group that walks with these limited beliefs, I can tell you they do not stand up to inquiry. So the thing I know is if you have those beliefs, you haven't spent any time in inquiry. You have cheated yourself on your own evolution and you believe your own thinking. It's so simple and so difficult to um, participate in. I've been at this work for years. I continually find limited beliefs for myself that I need to question. And the questioning dissolves them in the moment, but there's so many are neural pathways that are established, they keep coming back. And so for me, I just have to walk and notice the themes I have in my life. I think I'm a giver without expectation. And in my, um, my newest book, I wrote a lot of like life applications, please lessons. Generosity is one of my key values. If you talk to many people in my life, that's one of the first words they'd use to describe me. She's a helper. Like, go to size. She will help you. I thought I was a really generous person. But what I didn't realize is that my ego took my generosity and morphed it into control. So like help that's unrequested is control. The sunny side of help is control. Like, so I'm like, you're not living life right. Let me help you. That's because you make me nervous when you do that crap. It's all about me. My sister was very, very ill. And my family worked our butts off against all kinds of medical red tape to get her a liver transplant. We saved her dang life. And we stood back and waited for our shower of gratitude. And it never came. She's kind of ticked about being saved. And we were shocked. And part of my family went into, ain't she awful, the ungrateful thing. And I went into, oh my goodness, my ego has morphed my generosity into overgiving. The fact that I realize now, because I'm so mad about the lack of gratitude, I did that to be a hero. I did that to look good. I did that for her to finally realize I was that cool kid that she never saw when I was growing up. Like I did it because I wanted her love, appreciation, and approval. Even generosity, if you're not self-reflecting, becomes something different. Your best qualities morph into something because you believe they're what got you there. And we start to deny, we start to deny all the help we get, invisible help, privilege. We start that the ego would have us believe we did that. And I think a really good clue is that you feel entitled. Again, I see this in a lot of the work that I do where one side or the other has entitlement, which I think is one of the ugliest qualities. It's how dare you, do you not know who I am? 
or you've got no right to, you're impinging on my liberties, um, all this kind of stuff. And so what we, we end up with is this adversarial or accomplice role where we become the rescuer. We help without boundaries or permission. That's lethal. It's and back it, in that drama triangle again. Uh, absolutely. And it's incredibly diminishing. I see them as the worst managers and the worst leaders because they disempower, they disenfranchise, they take trust. They don't browbeat it out of you. They just passively, aggressively suck it away from you. And well, they give you the message that you are incapable. I mean, you get constantly messaged by a manager who overhelps that anything that is out of the ordinary escalate to me because you are incapable. You have no potential. It, it's like really demeaning um, someone's independence. And that's why in, in, in so many organizations today, engagement's good, but we've over-rotated on engagement and engagement without accountability creates entitlement. And that's why I my mantra to leaders is love people up, appreciate them, see their intersections that they bring to the table and their incredible talents and leverage those talents. The highest compliment is to leverage somebody's specific talent and, and, and be part of the process that they can do what they never thought possible. Love them up, but then call them up. And now here's what I want you to focus on next. And what was your part in that? And how can you do better? And most leaders aren't helping people make sense of the world. We go through a hard day and we go, good job, show up for Groundhog's Day tomorrow, it might be hard again. Instead of integrating the learning to say, it was a, a tricky day. What did today reveal to you about you? What did it reveal to you about your boundaries, about the way you walk through the world, about asking for what you need, or about how you respond self-righteously to disruption? Like, what did it reveal to you? And that's integration. I'm a therapist by background. And what we're not doing today, and it's the reason people are not growing, is we do not integrate. We let them believe that what just happened today was freaky circumstances rather than their lack of skill to walk through an unpredictable world. And we leave learning on the table. After something happens, the best part of that is that debrief, not in the one-on-one, you know, those are great, but three weeks later, in the moment, you know, it's like, well... Um, I'm seeing this a lot where managers don't coach in the moment. They either don't coach at all or they try and set an hour aside for coaching. And the problem with that is in a busy day where you're getting interrupted 32 times, times seven minutes recovery time for your concentration plus the five minutes per interruption, there's your eight hour day gone. So now you're going to be working evenings and weekends. You're not fully present at home. You're not fully present at work because you're resentful and you've got that victim mentality and uh, you feel like, well, you know, I'm doing my best and I'm run ragged. So you, you end up in this fight, all of your own making. I remember having a row with my wife, people who've listened to this before. I remember having a fight with my wife that didn't actually involve her. And um, <laughs> Most uh, fights, 99% of the fights we have, do not involve the other person. So You've put a cloak on them of what you believe, and it's completely untrue. She wasn't involved at all. The, the only time she got involved was acting as a catalyst by telling me that she was going to decorate. And uh, at the end of my tirade and fight with her, just sort of leaning across concern and saying, Marcus, you seem um, out of sorts. Are you all right? At which point I suddenly realized that I'd managed this entire 
Because you, you, you touched on something earlier. It's the I said, she said. I said, sweetheart, where are my keys? And she said, wherever you left them. Now I feel slighted. So my critical parent pops in. Uh, are you going to let her get away with that? Well, you know, if the place was a bit tidier, to which her response is, if you weren't such a slob, and World War III's broken out. And the reality, if, if I could just hear that without the ego, see, when I'm in ego, I'm wearing a pair of prescription glasses that distorts my reality. The truth is, your keys are probably where you left them. That's such a neutral statement, right? <laughs> but we hear the fact, she said your keys are probably where you left them, which is You're actually judging. pretty pretty wise and we add the story onto it like you're always putting me down you're always mocking me our suffering did not come from what she said it came from the story we added and that's what i want people to like break up with and question to realize how often they add story to reality our suffering comes from our story not our reality that's just that's the perfect example. Most of us are punching at a paper dragon that we created. The suffering part's completely optional. (laughs) On that note, I think we really have to wake up to the fact that we're running this uh, script and this story tells us that somehow um, we're not getting our fair share and that the universe is conspiring against us. Um, None of that's true. The circumstance doesn't determine how you feel. How you feel determines how you feel. It's a choice. If you're externally identified, there's never going to be a fair share. There's never going to be enough because we're looking for, if I make another 100 grams, I will feel good. And what I tell people is like, you can take the shortcut, just go inside and realize that you have enough. You have everything you need. You have this beautiful life. We can't always counter that belief, but what we can do is practice gratitude that activates and amplifies appreciation for what we have um, and stop labeling things. I have people uh, make a gratitude list and then I look at how judgy it is. People are like, um, their gratitude list is simply what I liked about my day, what I preferred. It's so ego. Like the only thing that hits the list is like, this made me feel good and I was happy about this. And I'm like, well, what happened to the rest of your day? And I'm like, no, write down your whole day, everything that happened. If you're truly doing gratitude correctly, you don't count your blessings. You count everything as a blessing. This came to me and I was able to quickly appreciate it. This came to me and I'm not yet appreciating it. So it must be here to evolve me and for me to find kind of the the lesson in it. Or I'm looking at this with such limited insight that I don't realize in the long run, you know, the person who who broke up with me in a relationship, I think slighted me 20 years later, I'll write the guy a thank you note. Mm-hmm. It's like our perceptive perception is so limited and you know, you're, you're just absolutely right. We've got to, there are these belief systems that we don't question. And because when we do question them, they fall apart in the light of day. They're the ego's running tape. All you need to do is add questioning And so much of that falls away. Why don't people coach? We send them through so many classes. Michael Bungie Sanger gives you amazing coaching books. The reason we don't coach is not because we don't know how. It's not because we aren't willing. It's because that if you can't self-reflect and question yourself, you cannot question another. It's not even authentic. You're too embarrassed to do it. So I come across founders who are often probably 
fairly high on the spectrum um, and have total lack of self-awareness of the impact that they have on others. And it's not that they're intentionally bad people, but they have a tendency to always know the, you know, the, the know-all end of the spectrum as well. How do you adjust your behavior in such a way that that reflects on them? Because I, I know in uh, your book, No Ego, you say that you, know, you, you have to do it first. You know, if, if you're going to give advice, take your own advice, which I thought was fabulous. As, a, yeah. <laughs> as an exercise. And if you, if you want someone to listen, then give them the gift of listening. You go first. If you think it's so easy, you go first. When people come to me to complain about the founder, I'm like, write a list of what everything he or she should be doing. And they come back with the list. And I'm like, okay, they should listen. I'm like, you start. They should. And I'm like, you start, you go first. And it's not to blame the victim, but how I deal with people that, in an organization seemingly have more power than I, although that's not true, is I just role model for them. I drop my end of the tug of war rope that I have to pick up for us to have drama together. So one thing I do a lot is, first of all, it's not about telling people. A, a great leader, whether you're a leader or not, the power of a leader isn't what you tell people, it's what you get them thinking about. It's what you generate in self-reflection. That's the true power of a leader. And when I'm around, especially founders or anyone, I translate. People are like, we got three projects dumped on us. And I just go, um, so we have three new projects, continue. And I just take everything a founder says to me and, and active listening, I just ditch the drama part out of it. You know, so, you know, Carrie, super ignorant, clueless in project management, Oh, um, Carrie, our colleague in project management, continue. Like I just set these micro boundaries where what they give to me, which is full drama, I just go, let me see if I have this straight. And I had a founder the other day and he's like, sorry, I had a crappy day. And I'm like, tell me about your day. He's like, it was just pure crap. So I drive into work and everyone knows I park in the fourth slot on the left and somebody's in that slot. Unbelievable. I parked there for 18 years. I'm the founder of the company. And so I have to park out in the hinterland to walk like a mile and a half to get here. I find out it's a stinking consultant. It's a ridiculous consultant who just doesn't abide by any of the rules. And then I, my phone rings off the wall and people call me up and they ask me the most insane, stupid questions. I am not their Wikipedia. This is absolutely ridiculous. These people won't follow policy and procedure. They won't look any thing over themselves. And then I went to this meeting. Oh, Al called my arch enemy and he acts like we're not enemies. He's like, can you go to dinner? I'm like, I'm not going to dinner with Al. And I go to this meeting and it's absolutely ridiculous. So basically I just disengaged and played Angry Birds on my um, iPad and drove home. And I said, so this was your day. You drove to work, you parked in a different place, the phone rang. And so you answered it. Al asked you to dinner. You said, no. You went to a meeting and chose to be passive aggressive, disengage and play Angry Birds and drove home pretty much. And he started laughing because he was so mad about his day. And I go, so you're mad about the phone ringing. You're mad about park. Like none of this ever happened. And so the translating is one thing. The other thing I do a lot is when like founders are talking, people that don't have a lot of insider feedback, 
you have to get things conscious and visible to get it out from the ego. And that's why I talk in the book, No Ego, all these tools that the ego loves ambiguity, the ego loves verbal conversation because it can twist and turn it. What you need to do to stop projection is get something out visible online or on paper. And so what I do a ton is I always have a marker. I always have a sheet, even on virtual meetings. I have a second camera that's on what I'm writing. And as people talk and they tell me their whole story, I'm like, here's what I'm taking away from this. And I just give them back the facts and I go, and here's some suggestions I want to run by you. And I just stay very immune to all of that. And the weirdest thing is you can totally train people. It's like puppy training. A founder will talk with full drama to somebody else. And then they'll come on Zoom with me and they'll be like, it's sigh. I need to act differently because everybody wants to be accepted. You can train people how to use you. When people are coming in hot, don't match their urgency. Just come in neutral. If you leave people without collusion, without sympathy, without rescue, without enable, without agreement, people are automatically left in their own stuff. They're left to go, that didn't work to get me the sympathy I wanted. Like, what's going on here? And so it's just getting in that position to stay joyfully neutral, open-hearted, open-minded, willing to be present and hold space. Well, people just rehear what they just said. <laughs> a really good exercise. I can't remember which book uh, I got it from, but it's to take the Buddhist mantra for happiness, which comes in three parts. Never complain about anything, even to myself. And that means even in thought. And you take an index card and it's Wednesday today. So Wednesday is the first day, the first column. So turn it landscape format, divide it into seven. And every time you moan, whine, kvetch, complain, grumble, whinge, bitch, or judge, you just tally. And you tally up how often you become aware that you're moving into that thought process. And it's amazing how quickly your awareness gets raised. Mm -hmm. And you become more conscious of the feelings in your body that trigger those emotional, harmful subroutines. And it's simply catching yourself. Yeah. It's amazing because a lot of people are like, Sai, I just need time to vent, whether internally or externally. And what people don't realize is venting is a behavior, the complaining, the kvetching, all of that. That's not a feeling. Like if you came to me with a feeling, I would say, you know, Marcus, what's up? You're like, I'm so frustrated. And I would have empathy. I'd be like, you sound super frustrated. What's up? A little context. And you're like, well, Cy didn't get me the information I needed. And now I have to stay late and write a report. And I will validate for you. I'm like, dang, that sounds frustrating. And then the Dalai Lama says it really clearly. If you're in pain and you don't want to suffer because the suffering part is optional, you have two choices. Step up and impact it or radically accept it with grace, mercy, tolerance, and compassion for your human being. So... I would say, Marcus, if you were great right now, what would great look like? Well, I could put a reminder on this calendar every month, three days before I need it. I'd be like, oh my gosh, go be great. That sounds awesome. Your ego would come in. You'd be like, yeah, but I shouldn't have to. If I do that, I'll do his whole job. Mm -hmm. And like, I would question that, you know? So if you don't want to impact, because your ego has these weird rules you live by that you shouldn't, you know, you should only do X somehow. 
you know, how's that working for you? Then radically accept it. Have you ever been late? Can you just give him mercy and tolerance? Yep, I'm just going to give this one shot. I've been helped by people. I'll help him. Awesome. What else do you want to talk about? I'm testing if you really let it go. He's like, yeah, but you shouldn't get away with it. I'm mm-hmm. like, that middle ground, I don't want to impact it. And I can't radically accept it. I just want to stay and vent about it internally or externally. That is guaranteed suffering that is optional that you self-imposed. And that's what that great exercise is to start checking how much you're venting. And when I vent internally, it is a sign to me that I am remiss on self-care. There's an acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. I am either hungry and not necessarily just for food, but for good food, for nutrition. I'm angry. There's a boundary I didn't set. There's, you know, I tell people sit with your anger until it tells you its name. It has good information about where you need to grow next. What are you ticked about? It shows you just sit with it. And it's days sometimes till it tells you its name. Are you lonely? Are you not asking for help or being vulnerable? Are you tired? Are you, you know, involved, not just in not getting enough sleep, but most of us are tired because we're involved in exhausting conversations. And the poet David White talks a lot about if you're involved in an exhausting conversation, just end the conversation and begin a new one. What we don't realize as we try to change other people is that's not our calling. Our calling today is to be the managers of energy, energy away from why we shouldn't have to and why we can't to how we could. What would a compelling future look like? And what can we do to get there? That is that space I talk about between the unpreferred reality and, and what's what could be that we can make the connection to. That's our our agency. Um, that's where choices become visible, where we can have impact, but we, we tend not to manage energy. We tend to match energy. And if they go low, we go low, right? And our ego loves it. It's a big party, feel justified. Being a member of the species, sometimes you have to shake your head and wonder. Are we? <laughs> How the hell did we get this far? Because it, it seems that everywhere we look is fraught with drama. Our managers and leaders are thrown in at the deep end and are these kids trapped in adult bodies that have never really uh, matured. What One of the things that I, I bemoan all the time is the total lack of leadership. But it, it, no one in their right mind, given the attacks on them and their families that would incur, would go into politics unless they are massive narcissists and want power. And they're the very people who should not be given it. And as uh, a society, I mean, I'm not anti-alcohol, I'm not anti, but we not only are into ego, we have so many ways to numb what our insides are trying to tell us. Like we do self-soothing. We watch Netflix for eight hours or drink or, you know, romance or all the things that, yeah, that we yeah. are addicted to, right? <laughs> Because if you get in touch with what's inside, the the outrage is not about how other people have failed me. The outrage becomes how I have stepped down rather than stepped up and how I can do it differently. We are full in ego. We are full into believing our own thinking. Like, you know, we separated church and state, but now state is church, right? Like people are as divided in, in my country in America um, between left and right, as they used to be between Lutherans and Catholics, like yeah. it's just it's it's the the new um, the new piece of it. It's 
we're we're definitely um, in ego. But here's the the cool thing. Like the Course in Miracles talks about it can be one second. All it is is a shift in perspective. This isn't a hard thing to fix. It can be fixed instantly in the individual with just different habits and dedications and practices. And every single day, you can do that hundreds of times a day with just a shift in perspective opens up to what seem like miracles. And that's really the key. It's like a lot of the ego says, I can't change everything. So I can't change anything. I'll just carry on. And that's playing you because even when companies say we need to change our culture, I say, just change your climate, the relationships of the 12 people closest to you. And then when we get enough climates changed, we'll knit them together to change your culture. But the ego is really good at telling us things are impossible. We have no impact. The world's going to heck in a handbasket. So just get what's yours now. We are so being played by our ego. When I'm a leader, I teach people two things, how their mind works. They don't get played by their ego and how the world works. So they don't spend a ton of time arguing with reality, which is, as I said, an argument you'll lose, but like 100% of the time. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? Because the attachment to how we think the way things should be, we see happening in so many relationships we try and create as well, because we try and get people to meet us where we want them rather than where they actually are. And then we blame them for that. I I see this in uh, sales and management all the time, where people are trying to pressure the customer to buy because they have a selfish self-interest in hitting a quota or keeping their job or getting their manager off their back or getting off a pit. So not paying attention to where others actually are, I think is part of that being the witness. And the, the, the eyewitness is having two very different perspectives. If you're letting your ego run things, you'll see it through one set of eyes. And if you're letting reality, then you'll see it as a, uh, through another. So how do we remind ourselves that we need to stay grounded in reality? For me, it is, I call daily habits and dedication. So a lot of people, like if you want to get wet, a lot of people want to jump in a pool, take a class, or you know they want... Um, this immersion experience. And what I would say is if you want to get your shirt wet, walk through mist every single day and it will get saturated. So a lot of folks, you know, the habits that we need to um, partake in are uh, personal habits. And one of the things we did in organizations that the ego is very clever to do is they said, let's separate out personal development from professional development. And we're only going to talk about professional development here. So you throw all these tools at people and they're like, but what do I do? What do I do? And it's like, stop doing and focus on being. Focus on the personal development piece rather than like, when I teach people, they're taking notes, not to use on themselves, but they're like, oh, this will be really good to make other people do what I want. Like, what's your trick, Sai? And it's like, there is no trick. You need to fully embody your human being, and then move from that place. So a lot of people want to move out into the messy world and um, clean it up. And I'm like, I tell you what, go internal, forge that wisdom, grow in ways that you can walk through the mess more skillfully because the mess isn't the problem. And, And so many people ask me, their number one question is like, how do I change somebody else's behavior? I'm like, you don't. But I guarantee you, if you show up differently, then 
you leave them no other option but to change their behavior. And language is so important. One of the biggest things I can um, ask people to focus on immediately is their language. They're like, he's a rock star. I mean, no one wants to work with them. He's a nightmare. He doesn't turn his expense reports and everything he sells. We need a whole team to clean up the order. But he's a rock star. And I'm like, can we just stop calling him rock star? Can we call him somebody who knows how to cheat the system and get sales that are unsustainable and expensive and absolutely not a target market? Can we like, you know, as a counselor, when we came to me, said, my son's using drugs. And I'm like, I'm so sorry to hear that empathy. He's 15. It's a horrible time in his brain development to be using chemicals. Where does he get money? And she's like, well, he uses his lunch money. And I'm like, well, where does he get lunch money? Well, I give him lunch money. And I go, well, stop it. And she goes, oh, my God, what kind of mother wouldn't give her kid lunch money? And I go, oh, we're naming it wrong. Let's call it drug money. Re-ask the question. What kind of mother wouldn't give her kid drug money? And she's like, well, a pretty decent one. And what we do, here's the eagle's game. Externally, the eagle names things too quickly. We don't say curious. And we name it. And judge it too quickly. So we think we know it all. We mastered it. Oh, I know what they're trying to do. And I know where this is going. And um, that was rude. We name it. We need to stay curious externally far longer. What we don't do is go inside and name it. This is because I don't set boundaries. I'm always ticked at doing too much for people. And so we are naming our external. Everything we're doing on the external, I would tell people, stop it and go internal. You need to have an internal um, life. And we have really neglected that. Pandemic, for so many people, introduced them to the state of their relationship with solitude and uncertainty. And it wasn't very good. Those of us that practice solitude and dealing with uncertainty were kind of unfazed. In the beginning, I saw it as a year time out. I'm an introvert, best year of my life. But you can go through it as a prisoner or a monk. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm choosing monk. A lot of people chose prisoners to the point I've, where they endangered other people by sneaking out. And we had to put fines on them of like 10,000 pounds so that they, why could people, they would rather risk 10,000 pounds than sit in their own life in at home so others could be well. Yeah. What more can I add? Um, I'm with you. 100%. What we do in our business, by the way, is like everybody who comes learns Tansel meditation. We meditate as a team twice a day, drop everything, 20 minutes, meditate. Those are the practices. And it's not just meditation, but those are the practices, self-reflection that we have to bring back into the organization. And it can't just be your manager. It's got to be you. I just came across a fabulous approach that an old client of mine, Sean Doherty, has been developing and it's the the 555 model so five minutes of circular breathing to get you into your body five minutes of meditation to get you out of your head and then five minutes of gratitude and he holds these classes four times a day and another one of my former clients um, has been uh, paying for her entire team and they're absolutely top performing team so these practices do actually work and they they will prevent things like burnout they'll prevent people wanting to leave for the wrong reasons because when you're connected inside you have you're connected to kind of the source of energy when you're connected outside you're exhausted we read poetry i mean there's so many things we don't bring into the workplace but if you're reading great literature 
if you're talking about things that aren't work, if you're reading poetry, like if you're if you're a seeker and you're just looking for that one line in a poem that is like, that's it, that properly gives it language. The power in that is amazing, but people underestimate it. Excellent. Side. Look, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly, but this has been absolutely enthralling conversation. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Cy age 23. What choice bit of advice would you pass on? Mine's pretty personal and it is um, stop performing to be chosen and choose yourself. When my kids ask me like, why'd you marry my dad? I'm like, cause he asked. And then they're like, why'd you marry your second husband? I'm like, cause he finally asked. <laughs> and I was so busy trying to be chosen that I never tried on for size. Is this what I want? Is this life I intend? And I think we do that at work. Like we want that next promotion and we never try and precise. Like, do I want the quality of life that comes with that? Mm-hmm. Like it would be to stop performing, to be chosen, stop trying to fix my inside stuff with other people's love, approval and appreciation. So the, the golden ticket I would say is to pray every day to be released from the need for love, approval and appreciation. Because if you don't need it, you will walk authentically through the world and be present to people and help a lot more people. Fantastic advice. So what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen? So from a business perspective, definitely no ego. I've got three books, Reality-Based Leadership, Reality-Based Rules, No Ego. My podcast is called No Ego. Go back to season one. Basically, my staff complains. I give you all the free training you'll ever want. I'm coming out with a new book that shows you how to apply this stuff personally. So it's all personal stories. It's not a business book. But like I said, it will help you in business. And that's called Life's Messy, Live Happy. And you can pre-order that right now at your independent bookstores or you know the big retailers. I, but I'd recommend No Ego, Podcast and Book, and Life's Messy, Live Happy, the book. Excellent. Cy, thank you. How can people get hold of you? I am at Cy Wakeman, all social media. So C-Y-W-A-K-E-M-A-N. And our company is called Reality Based Leadership. We have a phenomenal newsletter with video content that doesn't sell you anything. Sign up and you'll get tidbits like this all the time. Cy Wegman, thank you. Thank you, Marcus, for the opportunity. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then go back and listen to it again, take some notes and tag somebody who'd benefit. And if you feel the urge, then feel free to give me a, an honest review. A one star is fine, five stars is even better, but just honest review and feedback. And if you want to get in touch, Marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.